0: What is going on with the Ohio Unemployment Office? We're getting all sorts of evidence that there's a new rounder fraud and they won't answer our questions. We're coming at them again today. It's ridiculous that we can't get an answer. Mike DeWine, stand up and answer some questions about this. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston. It's Tuesday, but it feels like it's Friday. (laughs) It
1: does? I'll see you in a couple of days.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I've lost all track of time. So let's (laughs) let's stretch it out some more and get to our questions. What's the gist of the latest lawsuit about Ohio's new gerrymandered legislative districts? Layla Tassi, the Supreme Court is not messing around here. This lawsuit got filed yesterday, and the Republicans have got to file their response
1: yeah, today. Immediately. We're up to three lawsuits, baby. Last week, it was the ACLU of Ohio, then the National Redistricting Action Fund, Now we've got this third suit. This one was filed by the Ohio Environmental Council, the Council on American Islamic Relations in Ohio, which represents the Ohio Muslim community, and the Ohio Organizing Collaborative, which is a group that works for racial, social, and economic justice. Six Ohio voters are also parties to the suit. Basically, they're making a lot of the same arguments about how the maps that the Ohio Redistricting Commission approved fly in the face of the gerrymandering reforms that voters resoundingly passed in 2015 that that the new and improved process was supposed to engender bipartisanship and yield fair districts that reflect the voting patterns of the state but instead you know the new maps are are even worse in the way they preserve the Republican veto proof supermajority. So this latest suit argues that the new district plan dilutes the voting power of Ohio voters who tend to support Democrats by intentionally packing them into districts with the purpose of weakening their political influence. And the plaintiffs are arguing that that effect is most harmful to the state's growing black and Muslim communities because of the state's political geography. So the suit is asking the court to throw out the current maps and and order the Ohio Redistricting Commission to draw new ones that align with this constitutional amendment. And it it also requests that the court remain involved in the case to enforce and compel compliance, including determining the validity of new maps. So let's keep you know racking up these this? lawsuits. <laughs> yeah,
0: but I love it. Look, this is serious stuff. And the Republicans are shameful for what they did, acknowledging that they were basically illegal when they passed them. I mean, they, they just flew in the face of voters. It's really bad for the future of democracy and government. But there's an element about this that I love. They, they've got to, with a straight face defend what they did and you know there is no argument for what they did this is on its face objectively gerrymandered in violation of the constitution in just about every way it can be and they've got to today by the end of today respond to all three lawsuits with their arguments that are supposed to be based on law and logic defending the indefensible and I, i just can't wait to see what they say um and and i wish they had to do it in person so that you could watch them as they try (laughs) to keep a straight face and defend this silliness.
1: I know. I know. Let's uh, yeah. But like you said, they have to respond quite quickly. So we'll get to, I'm sure in a matter of days we'll be discussing on this podcast, uh, will Be lampooning their response. <laughs>
0: well, I, you know, look, the, the Supreme Court doesn't act in isolation. I'm sure the justices have seen the maps, they've seen the preposterousness. They're not messing around, they're not saying you get a month to respond. They said five o'clock today, yeah, right, for the first lawsuit, which was a week ago. There was another one filed Friday, and then the one yesterday, and they're all due today. I can't wait to <laughs> see what it says. I can't wait to see the next step, and hopefully. When the Supreme Court rules, they use strong language and and call this what it was, a shameful abuse of the will of the voters. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why would Nina Turner have any better a chance to win a Democratic congressional primary over Chantel Brown in 2022 than she did over the summer? Laura Johnston, I was surprised, actually, to see Nina Turner filing papers, making it appear she's going to do this again. Chantel Brown did beat her handily. In a very expensive race with a lot of outside money.
2: Right. And you said, How can she run when we don't know the district boundaries? But that's kind of the point here. There are going to be district different district browning boundaries. We don't know what they are yet. They haven't been set by Ohio's legislature. That's being done in a process right now that's separate from the state legislative districts. But the new district will likely include the entire city of Cleveland where Turner outperformed Brown. Though the turnout was a lot lower there than in the suburban portions, but I mean, think about it. At this point, Chantelle Brown will be a sitting Congress member, so she'll have the incumbency going for. She'll have more advantages in the access to resources from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and I think it's it's going to be a tough. I mean, I feel like voters would be like, "We just did this, like we're still voting." It the does same depend
0: way. on whether eastern suburbs are included in that district. The, the the real difference in that in that election in August was the Jewish vote. The the there was a real strong sentiment among Jewish voters that Nina Turner would participate with a group in Congress that that has little regard for Israel and they showed up in big numbers. They were activated in a big way. If if those suburbs somehow end up not in the district, then that could be much more competitive, but As long as the eastern suburbs are included, I just don't see any way Nina Turner can overcome that kind of effort. I mean, there there was a lot of money, a lot of money from outside Cleveland that poured into that because of that fear. Uh, And like you said, Chantel Brown would have the benefit of five months of incumbency uh, in a a May primary. So interesting. I, I was wondering what Nina Turner's next step would be. It seems like everything old is new again. We'll be dealing with that kind of race again. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What was the coronavirus alert that came from the Cleveland Clinic Monday? Lisa Garvin, we're actually starting to see signs. Rich Exner, our, our editor who's very good on the data, has seen signs that we might have passed the surge. We're looking at that closely today. But the clinic is predicting that we have a little bit more time with some dire days
3: they've actually issued probably their starkest warning yet in at least a year uh, right now cleveland clinic hospitals across the state are seeing the highest patient volume since last winter when we were in the thick of the pandemic so um and they're they're saying they're forecasting this is going to get worse over the next several weeks you know it's getting colder people are moving indoors uh you know a lot of people are running around without masks so I I kind of, I I thought it was doom and gloom at first, but the more I looked at it, I said, they're probably right. You know, Right now in Ohio hospitals, Cleveland Clinic Ohio hospitals, there are 460 coronavirus patients, 135 right now in the ICUs. And this has doubled just in the last month. And 94% of them, 94% of unvaccinated people, I'm sorry, I'm not stating that right. Uh, 94% of the people in the hospitals are unvaccinated, according to the Ohio Department of Health. So, yeah, it's scary, but I I think we need to heed their warning. I think we need to double down here before we face a winter surge.
0: Well, the hospitalizations lag the case numbers, and so the fact that they're still going up isn't a surprise. But Rich Exner did notice that for 11 straight days we've dropped very slightly. And so, I look, I get a question a lot from readers that we don't really have an answer to, that when you add up all the people that are vaccinated with all the people in Ohio who have had COVID, are you close to to herd immunity? And the, the answer to that was always not even close because not not that many people had had it, actually. But with all the people that have had it now in this latest surge, you do start to wonder, is it is it going to run out of hosts except for as Leila Tassi will be quick to point out the children who are not vaccinated and who are just starting to, to get sick. So it'll be, I, I, I hope the Cleveland Clinic's wrong. I hope it's not getting worse. I hope what Rich Exner is spotting is the
3: new trend. I, I do too. Uh, but, next... but I think that it, Don't we also... if i go ahead. No, go ahead, Layla. Oh,
1: I was just going to say, Chris, you were mentioning the immunity that that you get from actually contracting covid that's didn't we figure out that that is not everlasting? I mean that there's a shelf life to that immunity right
0: no, but it but it does provide some, and so the question people have is, is at some point do you run out of possible hosts does Does the surge peak because fewer and fewer people are available? to get it, or does it evolve and go after the kids because they're all unvaccinated? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the terrifying part of this is the virus finds a way. And right now, the the place to go if it wants to thrive is with children. So that could make this winter uh, very ugly. Uh, And if the clinic's right, we're gonna peak in the hospitalizations. Go ahead, Lisa.
3: Yeah, no, I was just gonna say that um, the problem with this too, the side issue here is that they're canceling non-essential surgeries again. Wait times at emergency rooms are getting very, very long. So, I mean, I'm like walking on eggshells. I don't want to do anything that's going to send me to the emergency room or the hospital. You know, and if you're waiting for a hip replacement or something like that, you're going to have to wait a little bit, a little bit longer in pain. And I think that's a side issue that gets ignored is that this affects people who don't have COVID.
0: Yeah, I know. It's, it's, just, it, it, it's sad that it's come back this way because everybody who's getting it now, everybody who's dying, could have avoided it if they'd just gotten vaccinated. This is all a waste. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is a Northeast Ohio company getting slammed by big fines by OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration? Leila Tassi, this story is gruesome. It's all about chopped off fingers and all sorts yeah. of other gruesome injuries.
1: Yeah, it stems, unfortunately, from the tragic death of of a 43-year-old worker at General Aluminum's engineered automotive castings plant in Ravenna, this this, uh, man, Alvin Kelly Jr. He had worked there only a couple of months when, in March, the 200-pound barrier door of a machine that he was loading closed on his head and killed him. So as a result, OSHA recommended the company pay more than $1.6 million in penalties, which is the largest fine the agency has sought in Ohio since 2016. Mm -hmm. OSHA had investigated Kelly's death and found 38 health and safety violations at the company. And this company employs about 1,200 workers around the country, and 220 of them or at the Ravenna facility. So the company has 15 business days to pay that penalty or contest it. In Kelly's death, OSHA says the company knew there was a malfunction in that heavy doors optic control, and the company let workers bypass guarding mechanisms meant to protect them from the barrier door closing on them the way it did to Kelly. But this isn't the first serious injury the company has seen at its facilities. OSHA says general aluminum workers have suffered 11 amputated fingers, two fractured fingers, two punctured lungs, a fractured back, a fractured hand, a fractured foot, and third degree arm and facial burns. So past OSHA inspections faulted the company for failing to properly train workers and safety procedures. And after these past incidents, the company signed settlement agreements with OSHA and underwent audits that recommended safety changes that were never completely implemented by the company. So you know, OSHA says when this- you
0: when you see that list of injuries, you really do stand back. I mean, how many how many amputated fingers does it take for you to realize
1: yeah. we have a problem
0: here? I how mean, many don't you care? I know- <laughs> yeah,
1: don't you that, care that, about your workforce? That, I
0: mean, that's OSHA. I, I mean, it's almost like OSHA has been too patient. Because I mean, when you look at that list of injuries, of course you're going to end up with a death if you're that negligent. Somebody eventually is going to die. It's it's just really sad. But I I don't get it. I mean, I, if you're a company, you really you don't want this kind of thing and the the story said that uh part of this what osha is saying is is in their rush to increase production and speed up production they they risk the worker safety that's just crazy right. so the OSHA,
1: they, they were very i mean very strongly worded in in their and coming down on this company they basically said that that this company has blood on its hands for its failures here and and you know the. They say that when you know, they want the company to change its culture and take safety more seriously, but they, apparently they can't just shut down bad actors. They can only fine them. So I don't know. Perhaps these OSHA findings will will help the the family of this poor worker file a wrongful death lawsuit against the company and teach them the lesson they deserve.
0: Yeah, the big fine and then the civil judgment is probably what will lead the company to reform because it hits their bottom line. A similar issue to what we're talking about next on This Week in the CLE. How much money does East Cleveland owe to people in court judgments that it does not have the money to pay? Laura Johnston, we talked about this a little yesterday, that generally what keeps police departments in line, if the brass doesn't, is the threat of big lawsuits. And that forces cities that don't want to pay out millions of dollars to people to bring in some sort of discipline. East Cleveland's flat broke. So it doesn't work. How flat broke are they?
2: Yeah, it has more than $57 million in liabilities. That includes more than $31.1 million in legal judgments just against the police department. And that was a 2019 audit. So that was released in May. That was the most recent audit of the city. So obviously it's been almost two years since 2019. So I'm sure they've been adding up. Like take the case of Arnold Black that John Caniglia wrote about. In 2019, a county jury, Cuyahoga County jury, awarded him 20 million dollars in comp compensatory damages and $30 million in punitive damages. All that stemmed from allegations that officers beat him when he was in handcuffs in 2012, locked him in a storage room for four days with no food, no restroom. So the city's responsible for the compensatory damages. So that's the 20 million. The officers have to pay the rest and nothing has been paid. And the thing is that without any money, there's really no legal consequence. And that allows the police officers to misbehave without impediment. And that's the lawyers saying that the lawyers are saying, this is really unfortunate, but we could work for years on a case and win and see no money. So they're not taking these cases anymore.
0: And there's no way for people to just like, start seizing the assets of East Cleveland, you know, oh, well, they got fire trucks, we'll take the fire trucks and sell them and get part of our judgment or, you know, we're, we're going to foreclose on city hall the, the because they're in fiscal emergency, they're, they're protected from that kind of move.
2: Yeah. As far as I know, I mean, they could declare bankruptcy and they've talked about it but they didn't actually go through with that they have a budget something about 15 million dollars in their general fund they're they're using traffic cameras to try to get a million dollars a year in speeding tickets as um lisa Garvin knows mm-hmm. they're, uh, they're they're trying to catch people there and they actually did just get a whole lot of money from stimulus funds like 26 million dollars split over two years but you cannot use stimulus money stimulus money to pay off lawsuits
0: Yeah. I just, if, if I sue you and win a judgment and you don't pay me, there are remedies I can take to, to compel you to pay me. I mean, you you don't get to just say I'm broke when you have assets. The, The court will cause people to divide a vest of assets to pay their judgments. I guess that that's just not available here. And so that allows East Cleveland police to be incredibly reckless in the way they they perform their duties
2: yeah john Caniglia is looking into what is the recourse what can we do here because it does seem like if a city is this far out of control and has no money and just infighting and and just mistreatment of people that this somebody should be able to swoop in take the assets try to pay them out and just you know make them part of another city obviously there's a question of it, we've done the whole thing with the East Cleveland Cleveland merger before. It did not work, but you have got to come up with something, or else this is just going to keep continuing. And right. The,
0: the The question is, what do you do when a municipality, in and of itself, becomes a menace? Mm-hmm. You know, when people become a menace, there there are means by bringing them into line. But East Cleveland is a menace. Anybody who drives through there is under threat now. So what can be done to stop the menace of that police department?
2: What's weird is that our reporters talk to a lot of residents. They're terrified of their police department. Yet Brandon King, the mayor, just won the primary Mm. a couple of weeks ago. And overwhelmingly, I believe. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, people still voted for him or maybe they, maybe not very many people voted, but yet the, the idea should be, if you don't like the bums, throw them out of office. Right. And that's not happening. And what's really interesting is if you go back to the history of East Cleveland, it was one of Cleveland's most prestigious suburbs for decades. It was home to the Rockefeller fortune. But, you know, by 1988, it was in fiscal emergency, and it's really never dug itself out since then.
0: Okay. Look for John Canigli's story later in the week. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With the last game having been played by the Cleveland baseball team under a giant Indian sign in progressive field, what will the new sign look like when it goes up for games next season? Lisa Garvin, a lot of people were talking yesterday about how it was the end of an era.
3: And it is like a 100-year era. Um, The sign, the new sign is going to look a whole lot like the old sign, quite frankly. I mean, honestly, they could just lop off the I-N and put the G-U-A-R, and it's going to look the same. (laughs) But anyway, no, it's an 81-foot-wide aluminum sign. It's going to be lit up, you know, with LEDs, and it's going to say Guardians. Hopefully, they'll round out that weird squared-off font that they had in the rendering. The rendering was released by the Cleveland City Planning Commission, And uh, I guess the Downtown Flats Design Review Committee will discuss the signage on Thursday, and then the full commission will come back and either, you know, uh, accept or deny the sign on this Friday. But here's my question or my plea, I guess. I really don't want to see the Indian's name slink off into the sunset. I feel like if they're gonna take the old sign down, there needs to be a retirement ceremony. That That's, that's my feeling. I mean, I think the Dolans would be wise to do that. I mean, we're basically erasing a hundred year history of a name that quite honestly, I don't understand why people see the name Indians as racist. When we have the Kansas city chiefs, there was a letter to the editor in our paper, uh, the plane dealer last week from a guy in Strongsville that said he had to sit there and watch the Kansas city chiefs and fans in full war paint doing the tomahawk chop. And that was okay. You know, so I, I don't know. I just feel like, well,
0: I don't, I, I don't think people who oppose the Indians name think that that is okay. But um, look for a lot of people, Yesterday was a big day. There have been people mm-hmm. that have been fighting the, the Chief Wahoo and the Indians' name for a long time, saying it's a misappropriation from a from a culture and and year after year. And they were jeered by fans as they walked in with all of their Wahoo caricatures on. But finally, the Indians did bow to the pressure and change the name to take away something that that a, a large group of people found to be offensive. Was it so a large yesterday group it was of really a
3: was it a large group no, of I people? I think so. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot that support the Indians, but a whole lot of people were against it. Otherwise, the Indians wouldn't have changed it. And for them, yesterday was a victory day. They've waited for this for a long time. And and finally, they'll, there will be no more misappropriation of, of a Native culture. Leila Tassi, I'm sure you have an opinion on this.
1: Well, first, in, in response to the question of whether it's a large group of people, I think it's just a small group of people because... They have such a long history of being a marginalized population that's been persecuted and and destroyed. Uh, but um, but yeah, no, I have strong feelings about about the. I, I'm glad to see to see us evolve in this direction. And um, you know, I wrote a column a couple of years ago about this. Uh, my experience meeting um, a young indigenous girl who uh, was presenting to her Girl Scout troop her her reasons for why she was so offended by by chief wahoo and i sat through that presentation and it changed me i mean i felt completely i i was really uh you know agnostic to chief wahoo and the indians name until then and i never looked back i got rid of all of my my indians uh gear and uh, i i was completely different from that point on toward toward I... this this I yeah, should we should point monitor. out. And
0: I, there is a difference between the incredibly racist Wahoo caricature and the Indian's name. A Thank lot you. of people who write wrote in um you know, the 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 Indians originally say we're getting rid of Wahoo, we're keeping the name and And most people accepted that. It's like, okay, and they would some defended it. It's just a cartoon character, but it's a really racist caricature. Um, So there is a difference between it. There are people that are arguing that the Indians doesn't. It's not offensive. But for a lot of people that aren't Native Americans, it was. So in in the spirit of collaboration, you come up with a new name. I mean, names. What what what, what's the value of a name? But there is the same claim it's a rebirth
3: there is the same spirit of collaboration with tribal leaders with the atlanta braves and the kansas city chiefs they got to keep their name after agreeing with tribal leaders it was okay and indians native americans if they're not calling themselves by their tribe navajo hopi or whatever they're calling themselves indians all of their organizations american indian movement i mean you know so i don't understand how a name that they use with impunity you know, you know, and rightly so. I mean, and but we can't use it because it's a misappropriation of culture. I think that's a dangerous well, road I think to also, go
1: down. Well, I think yeah. another question is, is there any other race that we feel it's appropriate to use as a mascot? No. So why do we do this with indigenous people?
0: And I don't believe that the chiefs and the braves will last a long time. Washington's getting rid of its name. We've gotten rid of our name and and high schools have been getting rid of these names left and right. I suspect that we will eventually see Kansas city and Atlanta follow suit. Interesting debate. And, and, and Lisa, there are a huge number of people in Northeast Ohio that are standing right alongside you. Yeah, I hear that's from true. them all mm-hmm. the time. They're, they're despondent at the loss of the name after a hundred years. So, uh, we'll move on. You're listening to this week in this CLE. What's the basis of the trial starting this week in which Lake and Trumbull counties have sued four pharmacy chains involving the opioid crisis. Leila Tassi, the opioid crisis was huge news from like what, 2014 to 2019, and then kind of fell by the wayside with COVID. But the truth is Lots more people have been dying of opioids in the past year than we'd seen in quite some time. This remains a very relevant topic.
1: Right. And this this case in, in U.S. District Court in Cleveland before Judge Polster, will, will this will mark the first trial seeking to hold pharmacies responsible for this crisis. It's two years after Cuyahoga and Summit Counties reached more than a $325 million settlement with major drug manufacturers and distributors. So this is very, very landmark The basis of this lawsuit is is the argument that the failures of four pharmacy chains, CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, and Giant Eagle, allowed excessive amounts of opioids to pour into the communities, fueling this epidemic. Rite Aid was originally named in the suit, too, but they settled last month. So these others could settle, too, but they're they're definitely moving ahead with jury selection this week and things like that. Uh, The case against the pharmacies focuses on The chain's distributing and dispensing practices. In documents, attorneys for the counties said that the pharmacies had a duty to collect and maintain data on orders at their distribution facilities, as well as identify any suspicious prescriptions their pharmacists handled in stores, and and they were failing to do that. The counties say that as distributors, the chains failed to identify large and suspicious orders that they shipped to stores. So the pharmacies deny those allegations. They they say that their pharmacists properly filled prescriptions from doctors. They notified authorities of red flags. They argue that drug gangs, pill mills, and cheaper synthetic painkillers are really what fueled the epidemic. The pharmacies pin the blame for the crisis on, on what they call bad actors, the rogue doctors, the Internet pharmacies, and the drug dealers. And, and they said the crisis goes beyond prescription painkillers. And, you know, move, you know, as users move from oxycodone and hydrocodone to to cheaper, more dangerous street drugs. So that's what we can expect to see play out if they get past this jury selection phase and don't settle first.
0: This is a much more interesting question than with the actual manufacturers. I mean, the manufacturers knew what they were doing. They were trying to addict people to drugs so they could make lots of money, and that's why they have been settling because they know they would lose. But but the pharmacies are a different story. Of course, we've seen you know, one-off pharmacies that were just pill mills and uh, they were criminally charged, but they are filling prescriptions of doctors, so so they could argue where well, the pass-through the argument though is you could see the huge numbers that were coming you could see what was happening and so do they have a responsibility then to put the brakes on i'm not sure what the answer to that is i think the jurors are going to have a a tough a tough time with this
1: um, yeah, I I agree. This is it's very nuanced. It'll all boil down to how effectively they can make the argument against against this. I I don't know. We'll see.
0: The numbers are staggering. I mean, when when the federal government rolls out the number of pills that were rolling through these pharmacy companies, they are eye popping. And so maybe that the the jurors hear that and think, you know, of course you knew what was going on here. But but do they have a responsibility to reject? what doctors prescribe. I don't know. I I can't wait to see how this one comes out. It's, uh, It's a serious question. I can see why this one would likely go to trial. There's a case here that they can make. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. One more quick one. We've talked about the new appraisals of Cuyahoga County homes, which were largely fueled by rising home prices over the past few years. Or Johnston, is that trend holding steady in recent months? We just took a look at what's happened since the summer.
2: Well, it might be stabilizing a bit, even though demand continues to keep the prices really high. Last month in August, the average home sales price, I know it's the state of Ohio, was $254,000. That's still an increase of 1% from July and up 14% from last year. And then in Cuyahoga County, we're looking at an average sale price of 243000 That's a 14% increase again um, over August 2020. There's still a lot of homes being sold, about 1,700 in August in Cuyahoga County. That's 2.5% more than August last year, but slightly less than July. So we might be seeing a slowdown. I would think that fall generally is a slowdown in the market as well.
0: Okay. Well, check out the story on cleveland.com. It's this week in the CLE. Okay. Good conversations. Thank you all. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. And thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.